Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm your host, Anthony Caldellos. A few years ago, I was working on a quirky little book called uh, The Cabinet of Byzantine Curiosities, which is a collection of weird and interesting things from Byzantium. I had initially intended to include in it a small chapter containing my translations of a selection of erotic epigrams from the 6th century. These were written in Constantinople by poets, some of whom we know from their other works. Uh, For example, Agathias, who wrote a history of Justinian, continuing the history of Procopius, and uh, Pablo Silentiarios, uh, or Paul the Silentiary, who wrote the Ecrisis of Hagia Sophia. Uh, These men, and others like them, they also wrote poems on a variety of worldly and sinful topics. The erotic ones stood out for me. They were quite racy and suggestive, and they alluded to ancient literature in many subtle ways. Let me give you a brief example. When I saw Militi, I grew pale, for her husband was with her. Here's what I said, trembling. May I push open the bolts on your door, loosening the peg of your folding entrance, and penetrating the wet bottom of your front doors, plant the tip of my key right in the middle? She laughed and said, looking at him sideways, You'd better stay away from the doors, or the dog will get you. Now, such a poem in the Hellenistic period would not be a curiosity, but these were written in the age of Justinian by poets who would have been known at the court. Their context made them more interesting. In the end, I did not include them, though I have uploaded my translations to the podcast site, and you can access them by clicking on the link provided in the episode description. They're quite fun to read. However, until this year, I found studies of this corpus relatively unsatisfying. The emphasis was always either on social history, and social historians were baffled what to make of these poems. Are they really describing life in Constantinople under Justinian? Or else they were driven by an anxiety about what these poems meant for Christianity, whose values are constantly challenged or negated in these texts. What these poems needed was a classical philologist to decipher for us how to read how to read them and how to situate them in their contemporary moral context. And this has now been done by Stephen Smith in his wonderful book, Greek Epigram and Byzantine Culture, Gender, Desire, and Denial in the Age of Justinian. Stephen Smith is a professor of classics and comparative literature at Hofstra University in New York. And his book demonstrates how important it is for scholars of classical literature to also study these texts in dialogue with social historians of late antiquity. Here, then, is my discussion with Stephen Smith. Hello, Stephen, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. So I have to say you've written a remarkable book here, and I wanted to say a few words about why I think it's so remarkable. It focuses on this corpus of poems Um, and epigrams that we have from the 6th century. So these are poems written largely under Justinian um, and his successors. And they focus on very worldly matters, including erotic matters and um, parties and courtesans and the pleasures of the city. 
Yeah. Um, so not the image that we normally associate with the sort of very Christian culture of Justinian. And I, I, I'm very happy that finally a philologist with a classical background who knows the ancient literary sources has read these poems as literature um, in connection with all of their literary antecedents. And I say this because so far I have the sense that they're mo they were mostly sort of used by social historians um, trying to extract, you know, history from them of some kind. Um, and I don't think they work well that way. Um, so I think you have for the first time done justice to this corpus. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, so why don't we start by, can you just tell our listeners, um, where do we get these poems from? Um, you know, where can our listeners find them? Um, and how, how were they put together? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's actually helpful to learn a little bit about who Agathius is because he's not terribly well known. Um, uh, first of all, uh, he was he was born in Myrina in Asia Minor around 530. Uh, he came from a fairly well-to-do family. We do know a little bit about his family, and that's from Agathius's own poems, from funerary inscriptions. Uh, we know about his sister, his father, and his mother. Uh, when he left uh, Myrina in Asia Minor, he had an education in Alexandria uh, and then in Constantinople. And in fact, there is a, a really lovely and charming epigram in which uh, he commemorates uh, the completion of his legal education with his friends Aemilianus, John, and Rufinus. Uh, and it's a dedication in honor of the Archangel Michael. Uh, in Constantinople, he practiced as a lawyer, a scholastikos, uh, and that's how he's actually known in the manuscripts, Agathius Scholastikos. Uh, and it was probably in his school days that he developed uh, this intense interest in poetry. Uh, we know of an early work, uh, which was called the Daphniaka, uh, which was probably bucolic, bucolic poetry. Uh, and the reason we know about this work is because the only thing to have survived from it uh, is the, the short verse preface that Agathius himself appended to the beginning of the work. Uh, and it's, it's a very short little poem that says, uh, I am the nine books of Agathius's Daphniaca. Uh, and it's hexameter verses, hexameter narratives uh, that were full of eros. Uh, and it was in Constantinople that he probably became very good friends with Paul Silentiarios. Uh, this uh, Silentiarios is a title. Uh, this was an official title. It was Paul was uh, an usher uh, in in the palace of Constantinople. Uh, he was a very wealthy individual, very well connected, uh, and he is of course most well known as the author of a verse ekphrasis of Hagia Sophia. Uh, and with Paul. Uh, Agathius and other poets from, from the city started writing and sharing epigrams. They were reviving what was essentially a Hellenistic genre, uh, and they were casting it in the language that had been forged in the previous century by the Egyptian poet Nonos. Uh, now, Nonos uh, was probably the most famous poet of late antiquity, uh, famous for his, his massive epic of Dionysus, the Dionysiaca, uh, in 48 books, you know, Nonos was trying to outdo outdo Homer in the writing of epic. Uh, but Nonos was also known for his uh, verse paraphrase of the Gospel of John. Uh, so these poets uh, in the 6th century are taking a Hellenistic genre, a miniature Hellenistic genre, and casting it in this, this very elaborate 
uh, lush, lavish language uh, that Nonos had developed in the previous century. Uh, we have about 100 surviving epigrams by Agathius, and we have about 80 epigrams by Paul. Um, now, why did Agathius collect these epigrams? Well, he says, he writes that um, they were being muttered you know, in private, probably in in, in private symposia. Uh, and there were so many that he thought that instead of just having them cast to the winds, that it would be best to, to assemble them all. So he collected them, anthologized them, and organized them into seven books. Uh, and these seven books were the first uh, dedication to the old gods, the old pagan gods. Uh, book two were inscriptions for buildings and works of art. Book three were funerary inscriptions. Book four were poems on Tyche or Fortuna. Book five consisted of satiric epigrams. The sixth book were the erotic epigrams, and the anthology concluded with book seven, which were sympotic epigrams and epigrams for Dionysus. Now, additionally, Agathius also appended to the beginning of the collection uh, three verse prefaces. Uh, the first preface is in iambics. Uh, it, it purports to be a, sort of a, a rowdy banquet. Uh, it's cast in the, the comic language of Aristophanes. Uh, and the second phase of the preface is in hexameters. It's the verse of, of Greek epic. Uh, and it is very much an imperial panegyric uh, in honor of the emperor. And whether that emperor is Justinian or Justin II, we don't know. Uh, and then the, the, the third part of the preface is a very short uh, epigram in which Agathius <clears throat> says that, uh, you know, monument builder, the monument builders of this world are, are full of vanity uh, and the greatest monument really is poetry and philosophy. And Agathius published this collection in around 567, uh, shortly after the death of Justinian. The cycle in its original form no longer exists. Uh, the only reason we have these poems is because uh, a later anthologist from the 10th century named Constantine Kephalus decided to create a new comprehensive anthology of Greek epigrams composed through the ages. Uh, and this 10th century anthology uh, incorporated the Hellenistic collections of Meliager uh, and Philip, and also the collection of homoerotic epigrams by the poet Strato from the second century, uh, as well as the cycle of Agathius, and in addition, uh, a whole bunch of Christian epigrams. Uh, and this, this is what we call the Greek anthology. Uh, there was another later anthology uh, collected by Maximos Planudes at the very beginning of the 14th century. Uh, and Planudes' anthology is very similar. It overlaps a lot with the anthology of Cephalus. Uh, but there are actually epigrams included in Planudes' anthology, which are not in Cephalus' anthology. And these additional epigrams usually are collected together as what we now call book 16 of the Greek anthology. So reading the cycle Agathius's cycle today is really an attempt to piece back together uh, the traces of it that remain in the Greek anthology. Um, I should say also that uh, book six of the Greek anthology, the erotic epigrams, 
probably contains what was the complete book five of Agathias's erotic epigrams. So those the erotic epigrams from the cycle probably represent the complete uh, the complete book that we have. Maybe the only complete book uh, from the cycle. Right. So any poem, any epigrams by um, Agathias and his contemporaries in these later collections probably date back to, or come from uh, Agathias's collection, the cycle. Um, yes. That he put together. And so you have um, chosen to read them according to um, a set of themes that you've identified as running through all of these poems, um, rather than uh, according to the categories of the books in which Agathias had ordered them. Yes. Um, and I'm interested in those themes uh, because they involve issues such as, you know, domination and submission and masculinity and eros and worldly pleasures and things like that. Um, can you give us an illustration of how these themes intersect in these poems? Um, and um, we, so we, we talked about um, uh, just giving our listeners a, a recitation of one of them that you use in your introduction just for the purposes of that illustration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why don't I... And the nice thing about these epigrams is that they're they're very short, yes. so uh, I can I can I can read them uh, to the audience, and the, the audience can get a sense of of what these poems were like. So the first one actually comes yeah from the introduction of the book. Uh, this is uh, from book five of the Greek anthology. It's poem number two hundred thirty two, and it's a poem by not by Agathias, but by Agathias's good friend Paul Salintiarios, uh, and he Paul is uh, writing in the persona of a woman, uh, the persona of a, a harlot. Kissing Hippomenes, I set my mind on Leander, and while planted on the lips of Leander, I bear in my heart an image of Xanthos. And while embracing Xanthos, I lead my heart back to Hippomenes. I spurn each one that's in my grasp, and sometimes receiving one man and sometimes another in my promiscuous arms, I seek to procure for myself a rich Aphrodite. And if someone finds fault with me, let him be content with the poverty of monogamy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fun poem and it's it's kind of wicked, actually. Um, the first thing I should say about it is that, uh, you know, the you know, the motif of a, a speaker celebrating multiple loves uh, is a traditional one in Greek epigram, but we find it most often in homoerotic poetry, specifically the homoerotic poetry uh, of Strato's collection from the second century. So, you know, Paul has taken what is essentially a homoerotic motif and dressed it up in heterosexual guise. Uh, but to learned readers of the tradition, they would know that this is essentially at its heart uh, a homoerotic theme. Um, you know, and the promiscuity here is just so much fun. Uh, you know, and we could say that this is pure artifice, that this is just, you know, fiction. It's just fantasy. But one of the interesting things that Paul does in this poem is says, uh, you know, in, I have an image of Xanthos in my mind. You know, I'm embracing my first boyfriend, but in my mind, I have an icon, an image, an icon right. of, of another boy, another man, excuse yes. me. But in the same line, that image then becomes the harlot embraced in that other man's arms. So we have this movement, this movement from image to reality, which is a very interesting sort of provocative 
provocative thing. I mean, if, if we take this as pure artifice, as pure fantasy, Paul has embedded within this poem a, a, a statement saying that images can become reality. They, ha they can have the force of reality. And uh, Paul also uses, uh, he says the harlot uh, is cultivating a rich Aphrodite. Uh, and the, the, the adjective that he uses is afneyen, and afneyen Aphrodite. And Paul uses this adjective once more, uh, and he doesn't use it in the erotic poetry. He uses it in his verse ekphrasis of Hagia Sophia. Oh, right. To describe the ornamentation on the altar of Christ. He says it's 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 got rich ornamentation, ornamentation, afneos. So there's this kind of strange analogy between the jewelry that the harlot puts on her body and the jeweled ornamentation uh, on the table of Christ in, in the church. Uh, so that this this. This the language that he uses is almost subverting uh, Christian Christian imagery and Christian uh, Christian imagery that he uses elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, and the readers who would be most likely to catch on to this would be those who had both poems, obviously, and and yes. that would include his fellow circle of poets m more likely than people at the court. Um, it's it's almost as though the poetry is gesturing toward. You know the, the 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 erotic epigrams are gesturing toward the poetry of the court in a way that only those outside can see. Yeah. And yeah. Go ahead. I also find it fascinating that he uses a, a female voice um, in this poem, and in this kind of so the poem alludes to ancient sort of homosexual attractions, but by casting himself in the voice of a woman in the poem he can still have his lovers be men that's right as was the case in the ancient poems right absolutely it's almost yes. like he's taken two you know two full turns and ended up exactly where straton was yeah, but, but even even by casting it in uh heterosexual guys it doesn't neutralize uh the sense of scandal at all um right because, yeah right but, right yeah, by 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 adopting this female persona, uh, specifically the persona of a harlot, uh, I think Paul is putting this epigram in dialogue with uh, a dominant Christian discourse. Uh, there is a very important hymn by uh, the contemporary poet Romanos the, the Melod, uh, and it's it's is it's his hymn on the harlot. Uh, and this is this is a really elaborate narrative in which a harlot uh, turns to Christ and, and is converted to to the faith, and she she expresses her her newfound Christian piety, her devotion to Christ, in the language that a harlot would use. So she talks about uh, find identifying Christ as her new erastes, her new lover. But what Romanos is doing is taking the language of the harlot and taking the the sensual worldly desires of the harlot and channeling them into Christian piety. Paul is taking the language of, uh, of the harlot and the imagery of the harlot and saying, no, this is harlotry for harlotry's sake. Right. You know, yes. I'm, uh, this, this, is, this is a harlot unmoored 
from Christian from Christian discourse, unmo- unmoored from uh, the pull of the church. Uh, this is this is a harlot who loves sinning, and she even uh, appeals to Christian discourse at the end of the poem when she says, "Yeah, you you can keep your monogamy. Yes, you keep your That's monogamy. You. That's not for me. Yeah, yeah." So, you know, this this is a harlot who's turning away from Christianity. But paradoxically, it's also the demands of Christian piety that are giving renewed energy to her worldly desires. Exactly, because the the emphasis on monogamy as expressed in this poem wouldn't, I mean, had no real correlate as such in antiquity. That's right. As a kind of governing normative in fact, legally imposed um, uh, sanction, right? Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and also the not only does the poem kind of reject monogamy at the end, but it the relationships are physical. Um, I think in Romanos, even the the relationship of the harlot to Christ is spiritual, and it ends up being you know on the road to asceticism in the end. Mm-hmm, I mean, that's mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of what it, what's expected. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the concerns, uh, one of the themes that run through your analysis is this focus on masculinity and the way in which these poems, you know, construct, you know, you know, what I see these poems as doing is constructing these momentary glimpses of sub- of a subjectivity uh, in a specific uh, context, um, yeah. you know, that's constructed and then dissolves. And then you have another poem with a different subjectivity. Um, and you talk about the, the the role of masculinity and its assertion and its subver- subversion in these poems. Mm. Um, and th- this poem is a great example of that, that, you know, I, I mean, I find it fascinating when Byzantine authors take on a, a, a feminine persona in their writing, um, which happens, I mean, I wouldn't say often, but enough that I think this is something that should be studied more generally. And um, there was also this idea that poetry itself was a feminine, I mean, in Greek, it's a feminine noun, yeah. and yeah. so is figured as a feminine kind of persona. Um, so wh- what do you see, what's the importance of these these shifts and these subtle plays um, on masculinity and femininity that, that's going on in these poems? Yeah, um, so both Agathius and Paul do this with regularly uh, in their poetry. Um, Agathius, in in what I find to be a really fascinating move, uh, in the imperial panegyric that begins the anthology, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a preface that celebrates military conquest. Uh, and so he's celebrating the military, Roman military victories in Africa, uh, in Italy, in Persia, and in Lazica, uh, which is, you know, Colchis. Um, modern-day Georgia. Uh, and when he gets to that phase uh, in the preface, when he's celebrating Lazica, the, the victories in Lazica, he can't help but think of Medea, right? And he brings Medea uh, into the poetry in a very powerful way. And he calls her uh, the maiden who was possessed by the madness of desires. Uh, and I like to think of Medea as sort of Agathias's avatar, uh, in the imperial panegyric, the sorceress, the witch who is casting spells uh, versus creating the image of a heroic Jason slash emperor. Uh, so I, I think very much that, that Medea is his sort of persona 
throughout the anthology, really. Uh, and we saw Paul doing it in the the epigram with which I begin the book that I just recited. Uh, and he does it. He he takes on a feminine persona in a very interesting way uh, in one of the erotic epigrams uh, that I include in the final chapter of the book. And could I could I read it? Yes, of course, please. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, also from book five, uh, and this is poem number 275. Uh, and, I, you know, it's a pretty brutal poem. It's a, it's a poem uh, about rape. Uh, um, but I think that Paul does something really very interesting uh, with this poem. And it's an interesting commentary on masculinity, I think. Uh, here's the poem. Charming Menecrates was lying outstretched in sleep one evening with her forearm coiled around her head. And I boldly mounted her bed. And as I was with pleasure making my journey halfway along the path of Aphrodite, the girl woke up from her sleep and with her pale hands began to pull at all the hair on my head. And as she was fighting against me, I brought to completion what remained of the act of Eros. And she, her eyes filling with tears, said the following, Wicked man, now you have done what you wanted, for which often I refused much gold from your hand. But now when you go away, you will entwine your arms around another girl in your lap, for you all ply your trade for an insatiable Aphrodite. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one man's attempt to brag about sexual assault right right this is the kind of poem that you can imagine um you know being being sung in a symposium he's bragging about conquest right yeah. and he expects to be congratulated uh by his peers uh and and the joke of it all is that is that he he tried to pay for this beforehand uh, but was denied. And so finally, you know, he just decided to rape her. Right. I yeah. mean, it's really brutal humor. Um, but what Paul does is actually allow the woman to speak through the perpetrator's own voice. And the, the language that he gives her is really fascinating. He says that she, she says that you all, lovers like you, are devotees of an insatiable Aphrodite. And once again, there's this, this powerful use of an adjective. Aplastos is the adjective. Insatiable. Now, in, in Greek epigram, this adjective, when it's applied to individuals, divinities, it's most often applied to death, thanatos, or Hades, gobbling up the souls of the dead. So, you know, the perpetrator of this act might like to think that, you know, he's gotten away with something. But the voice of the woman who intervenes says, no, what you've done is just prove that you're not part of the world of the living. That you're part of the world of the dead. Aphrodite belongs, you know, the true Aphrodite belongs to the world of, of life. Right, interesting. The Aphrodite, the Aphrodite to whom you're devoted, that's death. Yeah, this... even, even even the the act when when she um, when she's being raped, she's pulling at his hair, right? Uh, 
this the language and the imagery is right out of funerary epigram. Oh, that is right. what, that yes. is what mourners do at the grave when they're mourning the dead. Right. No, you're right. So there's there's this really I mean, if if this is eros, uh, this is a deadly kind of eros. This is this is the eros that belongs to the world of the dead. Right. So you know while um, boasting of, of masculine conquest, the you know what what modern politicians might call <laughs> locker room talk, I guess these yeah. days. Um, nevertheless, the poem contains within it the voice of the woman and her perspective, and her perspective yeah. is a is a learned one. That is, it it opens a doorway to all of these illusions and really undermines the 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 masculinity being asserted. Yeah. So you know, so if if this is a poet, if Paul is a poet who, um, who writes about sexual violence. Um, he doesn't do so uncritically. Uh, he know he he's acutely aware of what the costs are. Sure, but I mean it's not like there's some kind of message here, right? This isn't this isn't an intellectual position. This is I don't a, think so. Yeah, it's a play of subjectivities. It's it's yes. more like look at what I can do by assuming the personae of different people in this textual moment, right? That's right. Two personae in the same poem. Two. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Alluding to others in the past that you've right. got to work those in too now. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so this goes, this works throughout the corpus. Like you find these assertions and subversions of masculinity going on uh, all over the place. And sometimes they're very overt and sometimes they're very subtle. Um, and I, I thought that was fascinating, uh, the, the way you, um, you know, explicated it all. Um, and in fact, these poems are very elusive. And you just mentioned, um, how some of these passageways open up between the epigrams in ancient literature. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, I found there's some very amusing ones, um, especially with regard to sex, uh, in particular, the when in one of his prefaces, Agathias, uh, uh, he compares the uh, banquet of the cycle. If I remember, it's like two men kneading dough together, yeah. <laughs> which is just on its own a very interesting image. Um, yeah, it's right. That 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 joke is right out of Aristophanes, right? Yeah. What's uh, it, the joke? Uh, well, kneading kneading dough uh, is an obscene metaphor for anal sex. In in among Spartans, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those Spartans. Um, yeah, and I mean, I I mean, I've long believed that the sixth century literature is just rife with all of these kinds of allusions. Um, and you know you have to be very attuned to the language, the in and you know go and find where these terms occur in ancient literature, and go look at the context and put the rub the two together, as it were. <laughs> no, I'm not making another illusion or pun here, um, and see what pops out. And um, and now the poets also use sometimes they use some biblical allusions. Yeah. Uh, right. Could you talk about the one um, which is, it's an Agathias alludes to the Psalms at some point, And I found that one to be quite fascinating. That's right. This is this is a poem that in uh, in which Agathias is uh, speaking in the voice again of a harlot. Uh, her name is Kaliroe. Uh, and it's it's an image that is speaking, which is another typical uh, Hellenistic conceit, conceit of Hellenistic epigram. Um, and uh, the image was dedicated by Kaliroe's lover, Thomas, uh, 
uh, and she says, uh, if I'm getting it right, she says, I, I, I melt my heart melts like wax. Uh, and I, I, it's a, it's a quotation from, from the Psalms. Uh, and this is actually, uh, I believe the, the quoted by, by Christ, uh, as he's dying on the cross. Uh, so it's a really sort of interesting subversion of a very well-known passage uh, from 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 Christian literature. Uh, another really example, uh, funny example, I think, uh, is uh, a poem again by Paul, Paul the Silentiary, uh, and it's a poem from a Roman bath, uh, and uh, it's a poem that is actually celebrating a little gateway in the bathhouse that segregated male bathers from female bathers. Uh, and this is from book nine of the Greek anthology. It's poem number 620. It's a very short poem. Uh, and Paul writes, desires hope is close, but there's no taking women. A small gate shuts out Aphrodite the Great. This is a sweet thing, though, because for deeds stricken with longing, hope is more honeyed than the real thing. Now, the word for hope, elpis, is repeated twice uh, in the first and then again in the final verse. And it, in fact, it recalls the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, 8, 18 to 27. Uh, and the Apostle Paul there writes, quote, we are saved by hope, but we hope that it is seen is what we hope for is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then through endurance we eagerly look forward to it. Now, Paul Silentiarius clearly knows this Christian lesson, but subverts it in the service of Aphrodite. Uh, it's not that the bather in Paul's poem expresses his devotion to the Christian denial of worldly pleasures. In fact, he has no choice. Right. Uh, Christian denial is about, in fact, been in, enforced. It's imposed upon him by the architecture of the bath. Rather, he uses Christian denial uh, and he fetishizes that little gate to intensify the sexual pleasure that he feels merely by proximity to female bodies. And humorously, the word for gate that Paul uses, pilis, is also a comic obscenity for the female genitalia and for the anus. It's so much fun to think that this is the same poet commissioned to compose the verse uh, Ekphrasis of Hagia Sophia. Was he a poet of the church uh, or was he a poet of the baths and the brothels? And I think the answer is that he's both. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrestle with this as I was reading the, your book because this is a problem that was posed, you know, classically about Procopius. So you have a right. historian who's writing for, against, and sort of neutrally about Justinian at the same time and and here you i think by rightly bringing into your discussion all of the christian poetry both by the same poets and by ramanas yeah um you you create the same kind of puzzle uh like who are these people really um are they really that flexible that they can uh do both like i think it's important to stress how different these approaches are right the epigrams really revel in materiality. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, even when they're offered the... Well, so, so too do the hymns of Romanos. They revel in materiality and sensuality, but it's always brought back to Christ. Yeah. I mean, always to be given up, right? It's something to be given up. 
and transformed spiritually. Yeah. Right. All the material things in Christianity are to be transformed spiritually or to be understood spiritually. Romanos, I mean, you, you talk about how he refers to banquets, but they're banquets with the apostles. Yeah. Banquets at the side of Christ in heaven. Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 Uh, bathing is to cleanse away sin, you know, like in Not baptism. Not for the sensual pleasure of, of bathing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all, it, you know, in the way in which Christians would speak about their martyrs as athletes and all of these kinds of images that they drew on the ancient world's materiality and transformed it into a spiritual message. But these poems are just relentlessly and emphatically, <laughs> no, it's about the women. <laughs> yeah. This is not an allegory. <laughs> this is not a coded spiritual message. Um, Sex is fun and we enjoy it. It's fun. Yeah. And <laughs> I I love the last the last line of your book, which was like, these are people who wanted to sin just a little bit longer. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, you know, if for as long as they could could do it, um, there's also no closure in many of these poems. There's like moral closure. Yeah, uh, you know, the rape takes place. The neither side ends up getting fully what it wanted. Maybe um, yeah. the uh, the the your, the man in the bathhouse he doesn't exactly get what he wants. I mean, the little gate has blocked him. Yeah, right. Um, whereas in Romanos, ultimately, there's always a kind of closure, like the moral circle closes, the narrative is complete, uh, uh, you know, people end up in their right place. Um, so the the difference in the worldview that, that these works re represent is really significant. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just all the more impressed by their versatility. Yeah, they, they sort of um, revel in uh, an interpretive indeterminacy and a sort of a, a being in between um, that I think is actually re really productive uh, during this period. Uh, you know, this the, the demands of state ideology and the demands of Christian piety and orthodoxy were intense. Uh, and, you know, these are individuals who... Uh, are, are between worlds in a way, between spheres. Uh, and, and their poetry uh, refuses to commit entirely one way or the other. Uh, yes, they, they are worldly and sensual. They revel in sex for sex sakes, sex sake, uh, or they, they revel in the pleasures of the bath because bathing feels good. But those pleasures acquire added intensity because of the pressures of piety and because of the pressures of orthodoxy. So they yeah, they really yeah. are very much uh, between spheres. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also find fascinating the the way in which they are willing to how comfortable they are with a with fragmented subjectivity. Yeah. Right. That each of these little poems just creates its own little human world and then abandons it afterwards. And mm the characters in them and and you draw out how they like i think an important part of your analysis is reconstructing the subjectivity in each poem you know who's looking at whom with what desires what are the yeah. you know what are the obstacles what's gained what's lost in every moment and they're all kind of different and in contrast to that you know christian literature and ideology are trying to construct far more stable selves right they're trying to reconstruct the soul along christian lines mm -hmm. in a way that's 
um, you know, permanent and reliable. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's another way in which I think these two these poems just deviate from that exercise altogether. I I just find it quite fascinating. It is, and I think a lot of that has to do with their choice to turn to epigram as a literary genre. Uh, this isn't grand. It is. This isn't the grand narrative of epic, right? They're they're not right, trying right. to construct. construct uh, a grand story here. What they're doing is playing with subjectivity. They're playing with voice. They're playing with personae, uh, and personae that that may contradict each other. Uh, personae that um, may speak out against the dominant ideology. But it is it, it is very much experimental. Uh, and uh, they're experimenting with voice. They're also experimenting with gendered voice, the gendered quality of, of voice, uh, as we've already discussed a little bit. Um, you know, uh, at the beginning of, of uh, the collection of erotic epigrams, Agathias very interestingly says that the, ide- the voice of the ideal lover will, will contain within it both uh, masculine arrogance and authority but also a feminine willingness to submit. Uh, and so there, there's a blending of gendered styles that he sets up as programmatic for the erotic subject uh, in, in, in his erotic poetry. Yeah, this really is the domain of poetry. I mean, e- even if the poems, if these kinds of poems function in the same way in, in classical antiquity, where you didn't have yeah. the same constraints, Simply by having those constraints in Justinian's Constantinople, their meaning is different. I mean, you've em- emphasized this yeah. before. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think this goes a long way toward rehabilitating these poems as performing exactly these kinds of exercises in fantasy and pushing against the limits and exploring mm-hmm. possibilities. Um, because Byzantine poetry, you know, generally gets a pretty bad rap <laughs> you, you know even by even by people who study it sometimes oh yeah it's yeah. It, you know i've read descriptions of it as well not about these kinds of poems but the 11th century epigrams um but which by the way if you're interested in another <laughs> corpus um that can use this kind of attention but as just kind of being rhetorical prose in verse form yeah which clearly these are not but um, anyway, I mean, I really do hope that uh, um, that your your book opens up this um, this um, this corpus for further study along these lines. Um, so I, I wanted to raise the issue of, of social normativity, um, mm. which, which we, we've discussed uh, a few times um, just now, and it comes up in the book um, because it's 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 tempting to take say Romanos or Justinian. Uh, or any you know bishop of the time or ascetics as representing the the kind of moral norm uh, of the society, and to read the epigrams as some kind of reaction to that or um, playful um, exercise that operates in the sort of elite stratosphere of just people who can quote Aristophanes and Homer you know by heart, and that it's a limited um, social scope. Um, and I was just kind of wondering whether the, the, the tier that we should be, that we should be uh, thinking with a more complex tiered ideological structure in the sense that 
Well, everything that we know about how people were behaving in Justinian's Constantinople yep. indicates that these kinds of behaviors, at least, um, and materiality um, and even indulgence in materiality were pretty common um, at all social levels. Um, and it's possible, right? Like, oh, yeah. Constantinopolitans love to go to the games. They clearly hired yeah. harlots. They played Dancing dice. Girls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of the vices that are ref so refined here were also kind of common and vulgar, like all, all around them in the in the social environment. So who who speaks for this society in a way like is it Justinian and the bishops or possibly these epigrams have something more to say? Like for social for social yeah, history, yeah. then. I, so I don't, I don't I don't know that these epigrams or uh, the poets, you know, Agathius and Paul, I don't know that they were more in touch with the sort of so-called real Byzantine society than the bishops or Romanos or Justinian. Uh, I think that Romanos and Justinian knew pretty well the world that they lived in. Uh, they just uh, had a very strong feeling that it was a world that needed to be controlled uh, by a state uh, and by state ideology and, and Christian piety. But Agathius and Paul give expression to social values that are not always in line with the official ideology of the emperor and the church. And they're not going to let go of those. They don't want to let go of those values completely. Uh, and I think you're right about a three-part, I mean, tripartite model of normativity in that figures like Agathius and Paul represent people who are caught in between the official ideology on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, the world of the circus, the baths, the brothels. Agathius and Paul are mediating between these two spheres, and it's important to remember their social status, that these were individuals close to imperial power. You know, Agath uh, Agathius was, was a scholasticos, he was a lawyer, uh, he spent his days in the imperial stoa, whereas Paul the Silentiary was spent his days in the palace. Yeah, in the palace. You know, he was very close to to the emperor, the body of the emperor. Uh, and so, you know, individuals like Agathius and, the Paul, and Paul share in or crave that proximity to the emperor. And so they necessarily, I think, feel more intensely than others in Byzantine society, the tensions between official ideology and the worldly sensuality of the city. Yeah, and you talk about, you bring imperial ideology specifically yeah. Um, so apart from, you know, Christian values and the church, you bring imperial ideology into your readings of yeah. the book fairly often. Why do you do that? What's what's the point of intersection? Well, I blame Agathius for that. I mean, he's the one who structures his preface to the cycle as an imperial panegyric. And so he, he openly invites reading the epigrammatology as an expression of, or at the very least in relation to imperial ideology, and specifically the ideology of military reconquest. You know, the, the lavish panegyric of the emperor that he offers in the preface uh, unfolds luxuriously over 30 hexameter verses uh, and he uses richly allusive poetic language to celebrate the Roman victories in Persia and Africa and Italy and Lazica. So, you know, he's he's opening the door there to to read the whole collection uh, as framed by the the military project of Justinian. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's so it, it's no it's no coincidence, I think, also that Agathius's descriptions 
of Roman military power are intensely eroticized. Right, you mentioned that. Right, yeah, the yeah. opening the opening of the preface, you know, presents uh, a captive man and woman. Uh, Persia is personified as a veiled woman on bent knee before the emperor, uh, and at her side is a male Barbaros who's being choked by a leather strap, and the word that he uses is a zoster. Now, in one of his erotic epigrams, Agathius uses the same object, this leather belt, the leather zoster, as an erotic fetish. <laughs> when a young man is denied the pleasure of kissing his beloved, his girlfriend, he instead channels that erotic attention to her leather belt. And it's upon that object that he fervently presses his lips. He starts kissing the, the, the leather belt. It's all it's all very sexy, but it's sexiness that derives from the fact that it's all about power and constraint and denial. Uh, and so I think that Agathius's erotics is very much an imperial erotics. Right. Yeah. This is not the 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 reframing of the imperial image that the court would have <laughs> liked very much. Right. Um, but no, I mean you're right. All these exercises of domination and. And again, Agathius turns it to the material side, leather straps and yeah, kneeling yeah. and all of this. Like. <laughs> I, you know, at this point, I have to think that these performances would have been very entertaining. Um, you know, just imagine a bunch of these guys, I guess, all guys getting together to give a, this sort of erotic parody of an imperial ceremony. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's when in, in the preface to the history uh, when Agathius is describing his earlier career as a poet, and he talks about collecting these epigrams, he says that these poems were being hypopsithurizomena. They were they were things muttered in secret. Right. So they they were performed socially, but only in certain private circles. I think. Yes, I, I imagine that would have been yeah. the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Though, you know, I, I, honestly, I about Justinian in particular, and this is this is just a stray thought uh, that occurs to me often. I, I I get the feeling that I don't think he would have cared that much, Justinian personally. Like I think his concerns were different. I'm not even sure that something like the secret history would have offended him to his core. Uh, Theodora, Theodora is a different matter. Um, but I think Justinian might have probably rolled his eyes at a lot of this stuff. Mm. But uh, anyway, that's that's just my... Uh, well, you know what? I mean, I think that says something about um, ideology, too. Um, you know, ideology in some ways works best, works best when it allows for a certain amount of resistance. Uh, ideology takes hold in an imperial subject, not when the subject over-identifies with that ideology, yeah. when he allows it to work in his or her everyday life. You know, right. to allow little, there's a little bit of difference between me as a human being and the top-down ideology that's being imposed Right. Uh, and and in that sense, um, you know, people like Paul and Agathius, they turn out to be like the perfect imperial subjects. You know, Paul Paul is commissioned to write the Ecclesiastes of Hagia Sophia and perform it publicly. Yeah. And and he he he's able to survive 
because you know he dabbles in epigram. Uh, yeah, so in, I, the, in the same way that uh, Agathias writes uh, a history of the wars of Justinian, yeah, which exactly. is replete with all of these images of imperial might and yeah, praising the right people and so forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Stephen, this this has been uh, uh, fascinating, and uh, uh, I'm. I'm thankful that you have brought these poems alive i mean you really have for me uh thank you so much um so in, in closing um i ask all my guests to recommend uh, two books uh to our listeners that uh you know they would be good to think with <laughs> yeah sure uh, uh i'm a listener to the podcast so i'm not unprepared <laughs> yes <laughs> for this question <laughs> uh so sticking with the subject of greek epigrams uh i highly recommend a book that was published a few years ago by gideon nisbet uh, and it's called Greek Epigram in Reception, J.A. Simons, Oscar Wilde, and the Invention of Desire, 1805 to 1929. Now, to my mind, it sets the standard for classical reception studies. Uh, and it's a brilliant examination of the way in which for poets, writers, and scholars of the 19th and early 20th century, the Greek anthology became the contested territory for defining what counted as a normative interpretation of ancient Greece versus more dissident interpretations of the classical past. So if the anthology held up for Victorian society, models of what it meant to be, a, say, a patriotic citizen or a faithful husband or wife, it also gave energy to more decadent interpretations and gave iconoclasts like Oscar Wilde poetic models of how to be lovers of male beauty. I had no idea about this. Oh, yeah. And I, I, say, I think that Nisbet is uh, right. And he uh, just totally illuminates the role that the Greek anthology played uh, in the writing of the history of sexuality. So it's a book that I highly recommend. Uh, and the second book is uh, more recent. Uh, it's a book from 2018 that is half memoir uh, and half biography. And it's called Room to Dream. Uh, and it's co-authored by the filmmaker David Lynch and his biographer Christine McKenna. Now, I'm a huge fan of David Lynch movies and David Lynch's television work. Uh, and so you know, I was really fascinated to learn about his life and what goes into the creation of his surreal artistry. Each chapter consists of two parts. Uh, in the first part, Christine McKenna presents sort of an authoritative uh, bio biographical approach to an important chapter in David Lynch's life. And in the second chapter, uh, David Lynch sort of riffs in a, a more memoiristic style about everything that has just been said, sometimes even contradicting McKenna's account. Uh, so it's it's really interesting. I think it'll appeal to anyone who's interested in independent movie making, uh, and it will certainly appeal to fans of David Lynch. Yeah, uh, you mentioned David Lynch, and the first thing I thought was, boy, I, I would need someone to write a book like yours to explain some of his movies to me. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I I went into that David Lynch book hoping that some of some of those movies would be uh, you know demystified, but yeah, no, that's not the case at all. Oh no, just more indeterminacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go back to Romanos de Melodos and Hagia Sophia. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. It was a pleasure to have you on, and I look forward to your future work. Anthony, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.